Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday morning, late morning. Um, this is going to be a packed week because Pesach is coming up. So I'm going to see if I can uh, execute all these podcasts in an efficient way. And today we're going to do a bio. And um, I want to say that um, today's podcast is being sponsored by my very good friend, indeed, um, Shmuel Sam Finkel in, in, in Israel, in, in Yerushalayim, in Rechavia, Bishari Chesed, we already called those streets. And uh, it's in memory of his mother's yard. Today's the mother's yard. Today's Sunday. His mom's yard said, Goldabas Yitzchak Hanan. And, you know, um, and I wrote this in my side. I know your father well, but I don't remember your mother well. And he, I knew she was a survivor. He wrote to me that she passed away a couple years ago in 2011. And she was working in the wards of slave labor. You know that? That's terrible. Scars go come in you, wherever that is, for a couple years in the war. That's obviously how she survived. And these people... These are Polish, they uh, really went through the worst. And he wrote me, as she overcame her anger at God and lit candles, Shabbos candles, after the liberation of respect for her mother. I understand that perfectly. You know, people came out of the war with a lot of kashas. And uh, and I don't challenge anybody that lost their faith after going through all those concentration camps. I understand it. But it just increases our respect for those who were able to re- recover their faith. And she was an incredible homemaker. He said, I, I kind of remember that. The house was spotless. That is true. The meals were first class. And she liked to sing. And she had compassion for the weak and suffering. That's uh, that's nice. Some people came out of the war, out of the concentration camp, hardened. Which, I, again, I'm not, I have no complaints. I understand that. But she didn't. And she would nurse birds with broken legs, he told me. Back to health. How do you like that? And she said, I couldn't have survived the war without God. Right? On the other hand, I knew his parents, you know, they were scarred by the Holocaust. Like so many, you know, who who wasn't? You know, I grew up in that generation, all the survivors, everything, everybody's scarred by the Holocaust. How could you how could you not be? It'd be something wrong with you if you weren't. Okay? So pay tribute to her memory, as they say, when I come from the Shamashan Aliyah. I wanted to do the uh you know, a couple of weeks ago I did Leona Modena and I got a lot of feedback on that. And uh I mentioned another character in there and I just decided I don't know why. I'm gonna do him today. Not a famous rabbi, but uh, a famous Murano, I'll, I'll use the language that you're familiar with, and um, who I mentioned tangentially in the other one. Well, for some reason, I found it just interesting, and I'm talking about Eliyahu Montalto, which I, probably some of you never heard of, uh, but you could, and uh, I do this as an archetype. Here we are before Pesach, the beginning of the Jewish people, they discovered their Judaism, uh, the Portuguese the Jews, the Muranos. That's what they had to do. They had discovered a Judaism. Aside from the fact that they had a weird passive experience. So let me re- recapitulate what I've mentioned many times very briefly. We're talking about someone who lived in the 1500s and early 1600s. Uh, we're talking about a Portuguese Jew. What do I mean by that? Again, the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492. At that time, they were given the choice. If you want to stay, you have to become a Catholic. But if you want to stay Jewish, you have to leave. And most of them left and went westward, uh, eastward. 
So they went to the Turkish Empire, to Arab countries, that kind of thing. So a few went to Italy. That's the general trend of what we call Sephardim Tahurim. That they gave up everything to remain, keep up the Yiddishkeit. <coughs> if I uh, have a chance this week, I want to talk a little bit about the Barbanel and Zagoda. He's one of those who did exactly what I said. Ran away from Spain uh, in 1492 and, and went to Italy. On the other hand, there were those Jews, fair number, who were from, and therefore they wouldn't convert, and they went next door to Portugal, which is next door to Spain, in the same peninsula, in the Iberian Peninsula. And that's because the king of Portugal in 1492 promised them, you can come to my country, I know you'll be good for the economy, and I will not make you convert to Christianity, and therefore you can live the way you lived in Spain. And uh, there's no, Joseph Kairos' parent did that, for example. There's no question that these Jews, thousands of them, I don't know how many, lots, moved to Portugal, and um, Portugal at that time was an unbelievable economy. They were establishing uh, uh, em em empirical, what's the right, imperial uh, um, colonies all over the world to facilitate their trade. They had an amazing economy. I mean, this one, they took over Brazil, Indonesia, places like that, South Africa. And uh, maybe you don't notice, it's the golden age of Portugal. So the Jews are part of that. And uh, I'm sure they figured like this. The kings who kicked us out of Spain, the king and the queen, is of temporary Mishagas. <laughs> Give it a couple years, they'll reconsider, they'll realize that us not being in Spain will hurt the economy, and eventually common sense will prevail, and the Jews will be readmitted. Now, that never happened. You and I today, looking back from the perspective of the year 2021, know that the Jews after 1492 were never readmitted to Spain, okay? Not to like 1992 or whatever, you know. So, but they didn't know at that time. Uh, this would happen. Now, the thing is, so the Jews I'm describing are the Sephardim Tahurim. These are the ones who gave up everything in Spain and moved to Portugal for the Yiddishkeit. And then, five years later, in 1497, the king of Portugal, for certain reasons, turned on a dime, and he said, I changed my mind, I want you to convert now. They said, but you promised us we wouldn't have to convert. He said, I changed my mind, and you have to do it now. And he forced them. But Ines, he forced them through tortures and all kinds of different things, and they all converted Mamish Baonis. So this is what you call the Portuguese Jews, by which you really mean the Jews from Spain who ran away in, um, in what do you call it, in 1492, ended up in Portugal, and were the Fermis, and then were compelled by force to convert. Okay? Now, these are the people, therefore, who resented it. But, as happens, give it a generation or two or three, and our hero was born in 1567. So our hero, Elio Montalto, would be a grandson. If this happened in 1497, this is like uh, 60 years later. So what is that? Grandchildren, great-grandchildren, something like that. <coughs> you know what I mean. Um, so this is like third generation of, of the conversos, because the people we're talking about were the Jews who had been compelled by force to convert to Catholic. <coughs> so we're all officially Catholic. Of them, I would say... As time went by, 50-50, half of them, I'm guessing, said, listen, we're stuck, we're screwed, we're Catholic, get on with it. And they embraced Catholicism, certainly when they had children and grandchildren, because um, after 40 years, they made Inquisition. Once they set up an Inquisition, the minute you burp anything Jewish, you're gone. They have a spy system, they're very efficient, it's terrible. So after 1536, uh, you had a situation where if anybody wanted to be a Jew, 
uh, if they knew what's good for them, they'll get the hell out of Portugal if they can. Now, a lot of times the Portuguese wouldn't let them. But every once in a while, conditions changed, and for a little bit, you had like a green light. You know what I mean? Every once in a while. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but uh, over the course of the 1500s and 1600s, it's a complicated story, but every once in a while, it was a possibility to leave. Uh, and, of course, some people sometimes simply took the risk and got on the ship. It's very possible that they would be captured by the Inquisition, by the Portuguese Navy or something like this, and then they're burned at the stake. So it was a, a rough time. So in this crazy environment, you had a situation in which you have the Portuguese Jews living in Portugal, Mamish, under the knife, you know, living a secret life, and it's a big risk. And then you have those who escaped at one time or another, and they ended up in different communities, which historians call the Portuguese diaspora. That would be these Jews I'm talking about. But if they were able to get out of Portugal, so wherever they lived besides that, there's no Inquisition. The places that they ran away outside of Portugal would be divided into two categories. Countries in which they still pretended... <coughs> Excuse me. <It's> still... <coughs> Sorry about that. Countries which were Catholic countries in which they still had to pretend to be Christians. However, since there's no Inquisition, it's easier to fake. Right? So, for example, if you move to France, uh, it's a Catholic country. If they find you're Jewish, you're going to get killed. But if you keep a low profile, there's no official snitch system, so you can live a double life. It's much safer. England would be like that. That's one type of country. And then the other type of country is where the moms could come out of the closet and say, I am now not Catholic, I'm Jewish. I'm re-entering the Jewish community. Right? Uh, this um, is what I want to be. And there were a lot of people in the middle which you can understand, given the times. And our hero is going to be very active in, in these groups. So what do I mean by in the middle? A guy is Catholic, but he's grand grandfather converted by force. <coughs> and here you are. And, you know, the guy sees his cousin was arrested for being Jewish, whether he was or not, his, his friend or whatever. And he figures, you know something? It's a Mishagas to stay in Portugal. Because even if we don't do anything Jewish, if we're accused of it, it's very possible that one day we'll just be arrested and burned. So it's physically not safe to be in Portugal. So what will we do? We'll go somewhere else where we'll be physically safe. It doesn't mean necessarily that when they come out of that place, they're going to go and jump and become Jewish. There were some who did that, but many did not. Many said like this, I'm going to go to another country where I can breathe. And then I'll figure out what my religious identity is. You hear what I said? I'm going to get out of Portugal so I don't have the threat over my head every minute that somebody could tell on me and get me in trouble and get me killed. You see? On the other hand, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, um, necessarily give up my Christianity identity because I could lose my job. I could, I could suffer from it. Even if I don't get killed. So there was a big intermediate zone in which you had, you know, a, a, a questions about identity. One second. Sorry. <clears throat> you hear what I'm saying? There's a very common theme in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. The guy got out of Portugal or Spain, same thing, because it's physically dangerous to be there. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean I'm totally changing and coming back to Judaism and giving them a... <clears throat> So suppose, I'll give you an example, I mean, I'm making this up. Suppose I told you, you know, as a Christian, you have a certain type of driver's license. But as a Jew, you get a different type of driver's license. 
And if a Christian, or social security card. As a Christian, you get a driver's license, social security card, with a lot of extra privileges. If you have a, if you have a Jewish one, then you don't have those privileges. See, you can totally hear, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but, I, but it's, you can totally hear that someone say like this, listen, I have a Christian card. What I do in my private life is my business, but I don't want to give it the Christian card because I get a lot of benefits. You know, I get uh, government subsidies. I get uh, sales, uh, discounts. You know, there's a lot of pluses to having a Christian identity card. So it doesn't mean if I'm living outside of Spain and Portugal, I go to church all the time or something like that, but it's very convenient for my kids to get a card. You know, with a Christian card, my kids can get into college. With a Christian card, my kids can get loans in the bank. They can get jobs. I'm not, it's not so push it. Now, the frummies of the Moranos, the conversos, would say, how can you even think like that? <gasps> you should be ashamed of yourself. All right, it's true, but you can hear the other way also, right? <clears throat> now, having put that for a background, let's look at our hero, Elio Montalto. Uh, this is a grandson, obviously, a great-grandson. If he's born in the 1560s, if he's born seventeen years, 70, Shivim, years after the forced conversion, so I don't know, a grandson, something like that, of uh, somebody in Portugal who, uh, let's put it this way, he knew the grandfather was forced to convert, uh, but he's raised as a Catholic, if you know what's good for you. And second of all, his mom was raised as a Catholic. He had an excellent, uh, and let's put it this way, he had a high IQ and an excellent education in the Portuguese system. <clears throat> so he went to an elite uh, high school and he went to the University of Salamanca, which was the, one of the best universities in Europe. That was the best one in, in that area. And um, he got an MD, which is a high madrega, you know, uh, become a doctor. And uh, so he's, he's a member of what we would call the Portuguese Jewish elite. Now when I say Jewish, I mean those Portuguese who are descended from Jews who, can, who, who, who from the rich and the, and, and the powerful. What do I mean, rich and powerful? They're doctors, they're bankers, they're lawyers, and all the rest of it. So economically, they're okay. The problem is their identity. You see? Now, um, I don't know enough about it. I've read different things. But I'll tell you, all I ever do is tell you the way I understand it. This is somebody who realized from a young age that he's Jewish, a Jewish part. On the other hand, he's not stupid to tell anybody. And uh, he had practiced Judaism in secret. Who knows if they knew about Pesach and all the rest of it. I'll tell you, a guy like we're talking about, our hero, the best they had was the Bible. Uh, the Bible in Spanish or Portuguese or Latin. You know, they could read Latin. They had good Latin education. Uh, <clears throat> so if I'm somebody like that, he's not the only one. He's just a, a, an excellent example. Now, what I'm going to do is the, the closest I can get to understanding anything about Judaism are two places. I'm going to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, right? Especially the Old Testament. So uh, these type of guys like him will be very uh, Torah Bixav oriented, right? Torah Bixav they have no idea about. Uh, so, but you can read the Bible, uh, and then you read because you're Jewish. You read the Christian writings, which are anti-Jewish. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the Christian religion, especially the Catholics, I'm talking about, have their version of the Tanoim Amoraim. It's called the Church Fathers. These are patristic. They call it. This, these are the writers uh, in Christian uh, tradition who published religious writings in, uh, when, when Christianity was rising. Roughly speaking, from let's say the year 100 to the year 600 or 700. The last one was Isidore of Seville, so 
600s. <clears throat> so at the same time that we were putting out the Gemara, Mishnah, the Tanaim Amroim, the Christians were putting out the church fathers. Let's put it that way. And they became like sacred writings for the Christians. Well, if you're Jewish or secretly Jewish, I want to read what John Chrysostom says against the Jews. In other words, it's all anti-Jewish, but this guy's reading it, you understand? He wants to know what they're saying about us. I can counter it. I can slug it up. Which is very interesting. I'm sure it happened a lot. Now, mind you, it's a very Christian sort of thing. Nobody would say boo about it. I'm a Portuguese. I'm a Catholic. I go to church, because everybody does. Um, I read the Bible a lot. Um, okay. Um, it's Spanish. You know, I read the New Testament too. I read the Old Testament, so do Christians. And I read the Church Fathers. It's very uh, pious. You get it? <coughs> also, listen closely. <coughs> Thanks to the secular, the excellent secular education he got. Now, it's an excellent education, obviously, by the standards of the 16th century. I mean, the medicine he learned was the old wrong medicine. But, you know, that was what a doctor was at that time. And you also learn the classics, the Greek and Roman classics. And you learn, among other things, rhetoric, logic, how to think logically, how to write logically, how to construct arguments, how to detect the flaws in the other one's arguments. That was kind of very good education. So you have a very interesting guy I'm talking about. He's, he's somebody who's aware that he's Jewish, who knows better than to talk about it, um, is going for an MD, so that puts in a lot of books, right? I mean, notice to study to get a, a medical degree is a lot of reading, a lot of studying, a lot of tests. Uh, he also getting, as we would say today, a, uh, a BA and an MA, you know, in other words, your earlier courses are in uh, liberal arts, that is to say, in the 16th century, the Greek and the Latin and the logic and the rhetoric and the writing and all the rest of it. A very good education. Jewish, he has to learn on his own, to whatever degree he knows he's on, on his own. And uh, he said later on in life that he, uh, I can't believe it, uh, he like debated or argued with Catholic priests over certain passages in the Bible. I can't believe that somebody living in Portugal in the 16th century would be stupid enough to do something like that. I don't know. All I know is he became a doctor. Uh, he had a successful practice. Here's a guy in, in, in Portugal. And let's put it this way. He makes a good living. Uh, he married a girl from a similar background. Fonseca. You know, uh, mom is from a similar background. And therefore, the two of them could have a secret Jewish life. I have no idea how that worked. Because your servants can tell on you. <clears throat> your neighbors can tell on you. It's a very hard situation. But this is how he operated um, till he was about 35. So, uh, you know, figure all that out. Uh, I can hear it. You can hear it also. Uh, he must have... The world he's living with high risk. Um, you know, if you try to celebrate a Jewish thing in Portugal, it's high risk. Okay? Because all you need is one other person to get arrested and confess, and you're screwed because once somebody tells on you, even if it's somebody... I'll, I'll make something up. Suppose you one time had a Shabbos meal and some guy was there and tried to carve. And later on, that guy gets arrested and then they torture him. He'll give all the names away and everybody get arrested and burned. I mean, this is how it worked. But this is who he was. Now, it's clear that he strongly resented all the Christian stuff being forced in him and what he saw as the tortures of the Inquisition and the law. In other words, the whole Christianity to him 
was one big lie because it's it's based on um, and the suppression, on the burning, on the tortures, and all the rest of it, right? Let's turn them mentally into a very big anti-Christian. I'm, I'm referring to Christianity, not people. Not, not Christians. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about, excuse me, ideas. And so in 1635, I'm sorry, in, in when he was 35 years old, that'd be 1602, um, he left Portugal. Uh, now, again, he did what they all do, which is he left Portugal, but he didn't, he didn't go somewhere and become Jewish. I mean, he could have done that. He went to Antwerp, which I've mentioned before with other Muranos. And Antwerp was ruled by the, uh, by the Spanish. <clears throat> At the time I'm talking about, um, Portugal was for um, 60 years ruled by Spain. This is a complicated uh, subject, but King Philip II of Spain married a Portuguese princess. And when the Portuguese king died without any heirs, King Philip II of Spain took over Portugal. Uh, and that meant that for 60 years, from 1580 to 1640, um, Spain and Portugal were ruled by the same king, although they had two different administrations. There was, a, In other words, there was a Spanish government that ruled Spain and a Portuguese administration that ruled Portugal. It's a complicated subject. For some reason, I don't remember why, Philip II, who was... Mr. Super Catholic Burning People, he was a Momser and a half, uh, Philip II uh, of Spain, I can't remember why, allowed for a short time, like in the early 1600s, that Moranos could leave. It was obviously, if they want to leave, it's, it's sending a message. You know, maybe they bribed him or something. He wasn't the type to be bribed, but maybe in his old age. This is after he lost the Armada to Queen Elizabeth. He suffered the bit, bitter defeats. And the country was broke, maybe maybe something like that. <clears throat> You'd have to go and be Mayan in there and Cecil Roth kind of works. Actually, Roth doesn't deal with it. He's a French guy that goes into all this stuff in great detail. Rebach. But anyway, that's not the gay to you. But because there was a stickle green light, so he left with his family uh, Portugal and he went to um, uh, Antwerp, which was, again, ruled by the Spanish, by Philip II and his successors. Here, as I said before, there wasn't such an inquisition. I can't remember exactly. Sooner or later, they brought some kind of an inquisition into Belgium also, Tantwerp, but it wasn't with the same uh, rigor. But uh, let's put it this way. Leaving Portugal itself, this is a tip I'm, I'm sharing with you because it's typical, was itself like having a big burden, like a big sword off your, off your head, right? But you can't be Jewish in Antwerp either. And uh, you can't. And so... What he the, the place for people like that would be Italy, and so he moved slowly from Antwerp, from Belgium, down through France into Italy, and he settled in Italy. <clears throat> now listen closely. While he was in France, an interesting situation happened to Hainu. Uh, the the um, uh, Queen of France who's going to play a big part in our story, uh, Queen Marie de' Medici. Uh, she was the Queen of France, married to Henry IV. I mean, I guess that doesn't mean much to most of you, but Henry IV is a very important person in French history, the founder of the Bourbon dynasty. So while this guy was passing through, and he is a Catholic, I mean, he was known to be a new Christian, as they call it, so from Jewish origins, but he's a Catholic. So the Queen of France had a girlfriend, um, from Italy, she was very, very close to. Uh, this girlfriend 
start to have uh, mania, uh, be, be, become nuts, right? Uh, you know, she, she became insane. None of the doctors could calm her, could cure her. <clears throat> this guy Montalto, when he passed through Paris, uh, now um, secretly he's Jewish, well he has Jewish tendencies, but still a Catholic. So he um, cured her. Uh, he did it through psychosomatic. It's, it's very interesting. In other words, I, if you have the wrong medicine, how do you cure somebody? I remember, first of all, from a modern perspective, this uh, princess or whatever, this high uh, lady, uh, she was going through big stress in life. Um, she was married to a guy, Concini, talk about him later. He was like gay. And uh, he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, not a nice person. And this must have freaked her out. And the people in France were bad to her. And so I remember what Montalto did, what our hero did was, he's like this, listen, you stay away from your husband for like a couple months. You go on a regular diet to lose a lot of weight. Um, I'll put you on a rest and relaxation um, business that nobody can talk to you for a couple hours a day. Meaning common sense, like the Rambam. You know what I'm It's not medical. It's a common sense. And he cured her. Uh, it took a while, of course, but, you know, the, the, I would, in, in, to use modern terminology, he eliminated the stress factors in her life. And the queen was so amazed, you know, that he did it like she had the highest opinion of him. And then he went to Italy. And um, in Italy, he ended up in uh, Tuscany, which was the Grand Duchy where Florence is, ruled by the Medicis. And um, here... Once you're in Italy, there were a lot more people of double identity. You know, I don't know what you call it. It's not bisexual, it's bi-religious, you know, bi-religious. They're part Jewish, part not Jewish. And the Grand Duke of Tuscany, the ruler, although he did make ghettos and things like that, it's true, but he also was interested in the in, in, in the bottom line economically, and anybody who could help the, the economy and stuff like that, uh, he would, you know have a don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, and our hero fit into that. And here he could meet other Portuguese Jews who were big intellectuals, who were came from Chasha backgrounds, and are much more open about discussing Judaism. And here is where he meets people who really make a big Roshim on him. And uh, now he was a big doctor. And he was offered to be professor and sometimes even head of a medical school. I mean, that's a big madrega. Uh, but he always is is saying no. He's turning it down. And although he doesn't say the exact reason, it's clear to everybody the reason is he, he wants to be a Jew. And if he comes out openly, and like I say, he switches his guy card for his Jew card, then even in the laws of Tuscany, he won't be shocked to be a, 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 a dean of a school or a professor or something like that. And so he preferred to live as he was without having any official positions. Um... And he immersed in Judaism. Now, uh, immersed in Judaism secretly. But like I said before, in Tuscany, even though it is Italy, it's under the Catholics, there's no Inquisition, and so it's much easier to live a double life. And in this way, he met Jews and for the first time could learn uh, the, you know, the Hebrew better. I would say get an introduction into Judaism. And this lasted for a couple of years. Um, and so he has the advantages of having the guy card, plus, as I said before, being an eminent MD, and uh, on the other hand, you know, he's able to learn a lot more about Yiddishkeit. Let me tell you, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, 
is the guy who said, I mean, this the time I'm talking about is when they made Livorno, which I've mentioned in the past from time to time. And Livorno was the port city of the of Tuscany, in which you really could come out of the closet and be totally Jewish, Portuguese Jewish, and it'd be no no uh, and it'd be no problem. Uh, that's the only place in Italy where the Jews mamish had religious freedom because the king took a Ronald Reagan attitude. This would be enterprise zone. Uh, I'm I'm get, I'm not interfering here in the economics whatsoever. There's no unions, no nothing, and the, the economy uh, shot up, and the Duke benefited from the economic benefits, and the Portuguese Jews who moved to Livorno, uh, and and were Jewish Jewish. In other words, they conduct themselves 100 Jewish. Uh, was no 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 problems were made for them. There was no ghetto or anything like that. For some reason, our hero did not uh, uh, join this group. Uh, but after a couple of years, you see. He was being attracted more and more to find out about his Jewish side, you might say, his Yiddish guy identity. And uh, he leaves and goes to Venice. In Venice, he mamish came in. And this is just an emotional business. In Venice, he totally came out of the closet. He says, I'm giving up my Christian card and I'm taking the Jewish card. Even though I'm losing a lot of benefits, all the rest of it. You understand? I'm moving to the ghetto and the heck with it. And he plunged himself into Yiddish guy. So the guy has a high IQ, obviously. And so he started to learn with people, you know, Torah Shabbat, Gemara, things like that, whatever he could. Now, we're talking about somebody is, you know, approximately 40 years old, you know. Uh, it's not so easy. You want to know something? I wasn't there, but you know and I know we have this today. It's called the Baal Shuba phenomenon. You can have a guy, happens all the time, who's, let's say, very good. I'll give you an example. Uh, I mean, I'm making this up, but I'm giving a common example. Guy goes to Harvard or Yale or Princeton, or Oxford, or Cambridge, has a very good secular education, for some reason flips and becomes from, now he throws, he moves to Israel, he goes to Yeshiva, he's starting from scratch, but give it two years, three years, he's just where everybody else is, and maybe farther ahead. Why? Because the brains he had, the education he had, he had no connection with Torah literature. Now he's, for the first time, encountering Gemara, and all the rest of it. Listen, you can explain a Rechaim to somebody, you know, and after that, it's a matter of plugging away. If you Go through shots and this and that and the other. You can become a Tamil too. I didn't say it's an instant, but the fact that you had no background beforehand should not be an impediment if you have the education for it. I've seen it and you've seen it. This bothers people sometimes because the guy said, I guess, I'm FFB. I learned all my life in Shivas and I'm only here. Here's a guy who came to Shiva five years ago from zero background and he's ahead of me. You know, <laughs> but it happens. It happens. Now, our hero, if he would have stayed the rest of his life, and he only li- lived to be 49 years old. So I want to be clear about this, you know. And it's clear to me that if he had stayed in Venice for the rest of his life, he would have turned into somebody, uh, a, a very big Tamil However, something interesting happened, and that was that the Queen of France, Mary de' Medici, who I mentioned before, who was from Tuscany, you understand? She, you know, she was from the place where he had lived for a while. Uh, she's a Medici. So she said like this, I heard about you. I want you to become my doctor, the official doctor the king of, uh, of the Queen of France. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I want you. Let's put it that way. And he wrote to her. He said like this, listen, I'm a different person. I came out of the closet. I'm Jewish. I ain't going nowhere if I have to fake it out. And she said, listen, we'll do don't ask, don't tell. Don't ask, don't tell. He said, I'm through with that. He wrote to her. He said, I'm through with that. He said, if I want to don't ask, don't tell, I could be a dean of a medical school already. You know, I could have a very hush position in Italy. I'm, through. I'm a Jew. 
and I, and I don't want to fake it out. And she wanted him so much that she said like this, you're not allowed to be Jewish in France, but I will get a heter from the Pope. <laughs> right? I'll get a heter from the Pope. I want you so much that, um, you know, what, anything you want, I will give you. You will, you'll be an exception. There's a special uh, dispensation from the Pope, and you could be 100% Jewish. You can keep the halacha. He said, listen, um, if I come, I need a rov to bring with me. I need a shochet. I need this, you know, minion and all that. She says, I'll agree to all your terms. So you can just get an idea of how highly he was regarded that, uh, that the Queen of France, who was a bigoted Catholic, okay? But she grew up having no friends, and uh, she had a funny upbringing uh, because all her siblings died, and it's not necessary to go into this. If you want to, go Google Maria de' Medici. And she married Henry IV, who had 100 mistresses and all this. He just married her, you know, for to get money. And uh, But she immediately had like four or five kids with him. And uh, so they hated each other, but they had children together. This is a crazy story. And then um, she wanted to be crowned Queen of France, and he didn't want to do it. And finally gave in to her. And the next day he was assassinated. So people said she was behind the assassination. The movies and the books are all full of these stories. She's an interesting person. And when her husband was assassinated, she took over as Queen of France and ruled because her kid was young. as Louis XIII. And for like five, six, seven years, she was the ruler of France. And that's when she calls this guy in. She says, I'm the ruler here. I make the rules and I'll get a hat from the Pope. And so he moved to, uh, to, to Paris, which is amazing. Uh, with full knowledge that he's an exception. He's 100% a Yid, and he's practicing the Jewish religion. Now, I want to tell you something. He had participated in debates against Catholic priests. I mentioned this when I did Leona Mondana. That guy made a mistake dealing with this guy because he was super expert in the New Testament, the Old Testament, the patristic literature. Over the course of his life, if he's moving towards the direction of Judaism, he had given a great deal of thought, the way you and I don't, a great deal of thought, over these debates between Judaism and Christianity, what's the flaws in the Catholic teaching, and all the rest of it. He had an Eiske Haltner, Eiske Arbiter position on all this sort of thing. And when that priest in Padua, uh, in 1612, whatever whatever the year was, uh, challenged him to a debate, he smashed him. You understand? In fact, the priest said about him what the Queen of Sheba said about King Solomon. What I heard about you was, was only 50%. Wow, you're amazing. He rude the day they met this guy because he cut him to pieces on the on the Catholic stuff. He cut him to pieces in a philosophical way, by the way. You understand? He proved the whole doctrine of original sin is baloney. I mean, he he schmettered him. Uh, if you're interested, get the Eisenstein book and look up the debate uh, the the Vicuach in 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 in, uh, in Venice in Padua, uh, which is well known. It's online as well. So you know, you see, he almost worked this out all during this time. He was corresponding with people right and left to be Makar of them. Who am I talking about? Fellow Jews like himself, who hadn't gone as far down the road to completely embrace their Jewish identity. And he himself had gone through all this kind of business, and he said, I understand 100% what the issues are. Believe me, I myself have lived through this. I sympathize. But you got to do the right thing. you got to come out of the closet, and you got to run away to someplace and embrace Judaism and start keeping the tired mitzvahs. you just got to do it. And he now the trouble with him is he was too enthusiastic. So he even wrote to people in Portugal, and then and the Inquisition intercepted the letters and burned those people. So th that was like stupid. I don't know why he was so silly in that. <laughs> but besides people in Portugal, he wrote to Jews in Italy and other places, and he said, 
I hear exactly where you are. I I, I am at some I'm sorry. I'm like you. I completely understand the idea of the of the Jew card and the and the guy card. It, it makes 100% sense. And I understand the reasons that would push somebody to want to still retain their Gaish identity and all the rest of it. But I'm telling you, for the following, following reasons, you got to go by the truth and you got to embrace Judaism. You know, you got to do it. Now, sometimes he was successful and sometimes not. He had a couple people that were sent to him. So basically, if you lived in the Portuguese world in the early 1600s and you had, as we would say today, a kid with Amuna questions, you know, uh, you they, they would send you to Venice, talk to this guy. The same way today you talk to a Kirov guy, you know what I mean? Talk to this guy, because listen, he was a big MD. He was accorded by princes and uh, offered the highest positions in the world. So that automatically gave him creds. So let's say I was a Portuguese guy in southern France, and my kids want to um, marry uh, Catholics and live a Catholic life. I say, listen, I'll pay money. Go talk to this doctor in Venice. Talk to this doctor in Italy. You know, maybe he can make sense. You understand what I'm saying? He became like what we say, take care of specialist, something like that. Because you got to respect him. He knows the, the education and all that. Uh, this became even more powerful because he moved to France, to Italy. I'm sorry, to Paris with special permission. And he became the doctor of this queen. And she was the ruler of France because her son was young. Matter of fact, she was so tough that even the son grew up, she fought him in civil wars to control France. She's the one who brought in Cardinal Richelieu, but then Richelieu screwed her over. Anyway, um, that's French history. You don't have to know it. The, so, like I say, if you're at all interested in this, just Google the, uh, the Queen Maria de' Medici in, in, in France. You'll see uh, weird stuff. And the result was that, um, how should I put it? He had an exceptional status. Now, the French simply said like this, if he's under protection of the queen, then he is. Notice, he didn't do anything illegal. I'm now in France. I'm allowed to have a minion in my house with the 10 Jews, nine Jews. I'm allowed to have my personal rabbi. He brought a Talmud of Leona Modena's, Shaul Mortera, who later became the Rav in Amsterdam for, for the Portuguese community there. So we would say, somebody's a shtickle Talmud, Chalcham, you know. And uh, as his personal rabbi, he brought a Shokin, he brought a this, brought a that. And uh, he traveled around. Now, I'll tell you something really cool. Uh, once he's physician for for the Queen of France and for her girlfriend that he cured from the from the insanity, uh, she was the Princess Concini. So her her husband and her became super powerful at the court uh, under the Queen. The Queen kept her close associates, Italians, with them. She provoked the anger of the French by doing so. But for a while, they had big power. And these guys are all Hasidim of our hero. You know, they go to him every day for medical questions. My arm hurts, my head hurts, I had a headache, this and that and the other. His job is to take care of them. Uh, he uses his position to help secret Jews in France. You know, if there are Portuguese Jews in other places and the authorities are bothering them for whatever reason, he can talk to the right people at court and they help hold from him a belt. So it's amazing. They are strong, bigoted Catholics. They were against the Protestants and all the rest of it. But they make an exception for this guy because he's their doctor and he's done wonders for them. They were, it's just an amazing story. I'm not doing it justice, but I'm just telling the Russia Prakum. And so the result was that uh, he was like a, he was like a, what shall I say, Joseph at Pharaoh's court. You know what I mean? Mordechai at Achashverosh's court. Uh, the French didn't know what to do with him. But since he had such a good reputation, all the big shots in France start using him. So he became like the Rambam, the guy with the A-list a, a, a patients. 
you know, the Duke of this, the Prince of that, and so forth and so on. Bishops and things of that nature. That he was uh, summoned all the time to deal with medical issues seven days a week, which led to a Shabbos question because he wrote, he said, you know, for me to walk from my house to the through the mud to the palace takes hours and hours, so I need a heter to have a cab, <laughs> right? Uh, and he made himself a heter. Now, this was criticized by people, and he wrote something that was published by Cecil Roth back in the 1930s, Elimontotos uh, Consultation Sur Le Sabbat, where he writes a tshuva, uh, which I'm sure Mortero helped him write, because our hero could not have been a big Tamil Life didn't work out that way. He was only a couple years in Venice, and then he went to Paris for this uh, plush job. Listen, you tell me what his salary was. He must have had a top, he couldn't turn it down, as we say today. You know, he must have had a top salary. Plus, the queen and others gave him gifts. I mean, from the Goshmi's point of view, he had a unique situation. I'm describing an amazing story. A guy who's 100% Jewish and is learning top dollar. And so, I'll just read you um, the, the the first short paragraph uh, to defend himself. I heard people are complaining that I'm driving on Shabbos, that I'm in Paris and I have A-level patients, like I say, the queen, the prince, this, that, and the other, and I'm taking a cab, uh, horse-drawn, of course, and it's in the Tchum, and the cab is a Geisha driver, a Behemishal Goy, the Hamani Goy, Verotsani Laharos, Babiru, and I want to make it clear, Nikiusi Bedarazer, Visim Nikim, that I'm 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 justified in doing this. Vishaini over Lo Al Divri Taira, Velo Al Divri Chazal, Lachena Chalakapsak and Zelagim Chalakim. Right? Isn't that amazing? Ha'echad. And he goes through a whole long thing because this is a question. I'm not going to go into it now over here. It's popped up from time to time. What we would say today is, can you take a uh, you know, could you take a geisha cab or something like that on a Shabbos? You know, um, it's very very interesting, and um, uh, he justifies it. Now I'm not saying he's right. I'm saying he's wrong. But basically, I think if he would, I think I don't know. If he would have asked a Shiloh from some guttle at that time, probably would have gotten a heter for his unique situation. Get it? For his extremely unique situation. But this is what he did. Uh, the so he would see so he accompanied the queen and the king, you know, wherever they went, the queen and her son. Um, during one of his travels, which actually was a case where they went to have a chastana between the queen's two children and the Spanish king's children. Isn't that amazing? So in other words, the, the the son and the daughter of the king of Spain ended up marrying the son and the daughter of the king of France. That's Louis the Thirteenth. Their kid was Louis the famous Louis Fourteenth. So he went with the queen to the Hasana, which must have been a scene and a half, because here are the Catholics, they're all, the Spanish are burning the Jews, and here's this, this from guy, this from guy. Now he's in Portuguese, so he's dressed normal, and he talks Portuguese and Spanish and all that, so he's very acculturated, but he's Jewish. He died during the, the, the wedding uh, uh, business, you know, he died in the middle of France, all this. The queen, who was super Catholic, held from him so much that she, listen to this, she said like this, 
I know he would be, want to be buried the Kever Yisrael. And so she had the body embalmed, and she gave it to his rabbi, Mortera, the student, and she said, I guess, you know, you take it to Holland, you know, you transport this a corpse to Holland in the embalmed state, and you bury him in the Jewish cemetery in Amsterdam, and that's where he is today. Right? So the queen, who was a cruel person and a tough person, and this, that, and the other, but she had a special spot in her heart for this guy. There's no question about it. So the Yad David had the misfortune to be buried in the Geisha Cemetery. This guy had the good fortune that he was buried in a Kevriest row by the command of the Queen of France in it was 1615, and he died at the right time. A year later, was uprising against the Queen. This uh, couple, Concini, were murdered. Uh, the, the, the wife was accused of being a secret Jew, that the guy had uh, converted to Judaism. They... They raided his house. They found, ooh, he had Hebrew sperm. What is the Hebrew, the, the, the French uh, uh, Catholic uh, Inquisition? Uh, he had a tour. He had a, a, a chinuch. You know, he had very few sperm, believe me. Uh, and uh, they were burned at the stake. And a, a lot of bad things happened. But he was already gone. He died at the right moment. Now he's only 49 years old. So I've left you with a remarkable story. He's one of a galaxy of these Portuguese Jews who fought ideological fights um, among their fellow Jews. People asked him, he said, you have such good material, uh, why don't you publish this anti-Christian stuff? He said, I'm more interested in being Makarv one Jew to Judaism than slugging up a thousand Christian uh, Christians. And that's what it was, a Yiddish Yid. And um, therefore, he's a, a famous figure. Now, he's not a rabbi, he's not a posik. He's not a Rosh Hashiva, anything like this. But we had these heroic Jews who each one had to find their way. Uh, this is for St. Finkel's mother. She had to find her way after the Holocaust to Judaism again. So this, our hero went through a different type of Holocaust, a very different type. They had to find their own way back to Judaism, and they did it, and it wasn't Pasha at all. And uh, I think this is an interesting story. Uh, with that, I bid you a good week, and uh, I'll see you soon, I hope. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.